0: You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod.
1: Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Hospital, and I want to start out by saying a big thank you and welcome to all of our dedicated listeners and a huge thank you to the Global Autoimmune Institute for their ongoing support to make this podcast possible. Today we're going to talk about the recent Celiac Disease Symposium at Columbia University's Celiac Disease Center. This biennial event hosts two forums, one scientific and one clinical, and brings together researchers, physicians, patients, parents, and nutritionists from around the world. It's an amazing time to come together to learn, see old friends, and make some new ones. Unfortunately, this year, because of the coronavirus, the conference had a last-minute shift, and only the speakers were able to gather in New York City. Thankfully, the organizers, Dr. Peter Green and his team, were able to set up a web-based service so that the attendees could tune in via livestream and still partake in the incredible sharing of knowledge. Since I know that many of our listeners were not able to attend, today we're going to do a recap of the conference on the podcast and talk about some of the big topics with one of our favorite guests, Dr. Jocelyn Sylvester from Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Sylvester. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. So I want to start out by talking about lessons learned from the vaccine trials. For quite some time, you know, we've heard that there's this vaccine for celiac disease that's coming. During the conference, Dr. Anderson gave another fascinating lecture about what went wrong with the trial and what researchers learned from the next vaccine trials. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this, what we learned and why a vaccine for celiac didn't come to be? So that's a very big and a very complex question. So
0: let's (laughs) unpack it a little bit at a time. So first of all, I think it's important to remember that while we call it a vaccine, this is actually something very different from the vaccines that we think of when we take our children to get their MMR vaccine and their Tdap vaccine, and we come for our flu vaccines, and maybe in a few years our novel coronavirus vaccine. But um, those vaccines are all Uh, based on trying to get your immune system to recognize a pathogen, either a bacteria or a virus, so that when it sees that pathogen, it can attack it. Now, for celiac disease, what we want to do is something different because instead of trying to rev up the immune system when when it sees gluten, we want to try and get it to not pay as much attention. And so this trial, what was called a vaccine trial, was actually more like, if you think about immunotherapy, if somebody has an allergy to wasps. And so the idea was to give a tiny bit of gluten regularly, and this was actually several times a week, to see whether or not almost like tickling the immune system with that small amount of gluten and presenting it in a particular way would help dampen the response if somebody was actually exposed to gluten. And what was really interesting about this this study is that when they looked at it, they looked at the immune response in different ways. And when they looked at the immune cells and how active they were and how many they were, it actually looked like the treatment was working. However, when they looked at what they called their primary or their most important outcome, which is how you determine whether a study worked or not, they decided to look at whether the villus height crypt depth ratio was actually
1: preserved. And unfortunately, that was not. So for our listeners who don't understand the villus height versus crypt, can you decode what that means for them? Absolutely. So if you look at your hand
0: and spread your fingers up, you can see that there's fingers and spaces between the fingers. If you imagine that The distance between your hand and your first knuckle is the crypt, and then the next two fingers, that's the villus. In celiac disease, what happens is that that villus gets shorter and the crypt gets longer when it's sick. And so when you're healthy, you have tall villi and short crypts. And so one of the ways for measuring the severity of celiac disease is to look at the villus height-crypt depth ratio, because that gives you an idea of whether you have tall villi or big crypts. So what did we learn from this study? So... We learned a lot of things. We learned a lot about how to conduct a clinical trial in celiac disease because although we've had several over the last decade or so, there still hasn't been a lot relative to many other diseases. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that even though the treatment didn't work, any opportunity to intensively study people with celiac disease is actually an important opportunity to learn about celiac disease. And I think this is why it's so important that we conduct these trials and that our patients participate in them because... Although the ultimate goal was to get a treatment, there's many things to learn along the way. And one of the things that was learned along the way was learning about what happens when you give people gluten. And so one of the first things that was somewhat surprising was because this is a subcutaneous injection, they looked at what happens to people when you give them gluten subcutaneously. And so at the very beginning of this process, it it was noted that if you inject gluten into the skin, people got the same reaction of vomiting headache, nausea, that they would get if they had gluten by eating it, which is very interesting finding that makes immunologic sense, but isn't necessarily how we had thought about celiac disease. So I think that's a good example of something we've learned from this trial. The other thing they did for this study is they did double-blind gluten challenges and looked at the response very early after the challenge. So in many of the studies we've done, such as Dr. Leffler's um, kinetics a response to gluten challenge study, it's a longer gluten challenge looking at weeks or at least right. many days or even months. And so what happens in the very first hours after gluten exposure is different than what happens after you've been exposed to gluten regularly for many days or weeks. And so what they found was that, as many patients will tell me, they reacted to gluten very quickly after consuming it. And the most consistent symptoms when patients got gluten were actually nausea and vomiting, uh, at least in the very early aftermath of getting the gluten. So within hours, when patients got gluten, if
1: they had symptoms, it was typically
0: nausea and vomiting and not diarrhea.
1: That's really interesting, since it, it feels as though we most often hear of people reacting many, many hours later, sometimes even the next morning, and diarrhea being the most common thing. Does this mean that maybe we're not so clear about knowing when we have a gluten exposure? Well, I think there's lots of reasons that people aren't clear about whether or not they've had a gluten exposure,
0: but I also think it probably has to do with the fact that there's many different things happening in the body when one is exposed to gluten. And so the first thing that happens is that those cells that are already there that recognize gluten get activated, and they spit out a lot of chemicals called cytokines, And it's actually one particular cytokine called IL-2 or interleukin-2, which is actually most closely correlated to vomiting. And so this is very interesting because it means we can actually show that we give somebody gluten, it causes an immune reaction that releases a particular cytokine, and then this cytokine causes a specific symptom, which is vomiting. And simply learning that is very helpful because that happens within hours of giving people one dose of gluten, which is very different than giving people gluten for days and days
1: and then looking to see what happens to their intestine. Got it. So I want to go back to you talking about injecting gluten into people because I I feel the Twitterverse coming at me as soon as we post this podcast. Talk to us about the difference between injecting gluten into us subcutaneously versus using lotion that may contain gluten or touching gluten.
0: So that's a good point, and it's very different. So most people – don't inject gluten, and it's not something that we routinely do even in medicine. So although there's many injectable medications, things like vaccines and a lot of the biologics that are injectable don't contain gluten. So really this was specifically for this trial, people were injecting gluten. And the difference between injecting gluten and rubbing gluten on your skin is that it's going deeper and it's going in a higher dose and it doesn't have a chance, as much of a chance to be processed. So it remains true that we would not expect you to have symptoms if you have gluten on your skin now of course if you put if that's your hands and your hands touch your mouth and you ingest the gluten that's another story
1: <laughs> great so one of the other things dr andish then talked about was that as they did repeat biopsies on these patients with celiac disease, they rarely showed completely healed, healed villi, even though they'd been on the gluten-free diet for quite some time. Does this reinforce um, you know, one of the points that you made during your talk about the doggy bag study and what others talked about, that the gluten-free diet is not sufficient to treat celiac disease and that we really do need something better?
0: It's an interesting question, and I think that as a field – We're moving in the direction of recognizing that a gluten-free diet is not free of gluten and that most people who are striving very hard to eliminate all gluten are in fact probably getting small, smaller than milligrams, not grams, which is what Dr. Anderson used in his gluten challenge study uh, for the next vaccine um, on a relatively frequent basis. It is still an open question though whether there's something biologic that some people won't heal. It's striking that the older patients are, it seems like the less likely and the longer it might take them to heal, suggesting that maybe there's a biologic process and it's not simply related to gluten exposure.
1: Great. So before we switch topics um, from drug development, I want to talk a little bit about the other drugs that were talked about during the conference and what they mean for any everyday life. Were any of these drugs something that would actually allow a person with celiac to go out and eat regular pizza or a croissant?
0: So I think there was some very interesting data uh, presented by my colleague, Dr. Kieran Kelly from Beth Israel in Boston. And he's been working with a company called Core, which um, has a, another injectable form of gluten. But this is different from the next facts in a couple ways. First of all, instead of injecting into the skin, it's injected directly into the bloodstream. Second of all, it's actually not raw gluten that's put in. It's gluten that's been packaged in a negatively charged particle, and interestingly enough, these particles are actually made out of a material that's used to surface joints. So we know it's safe to give this material to people, Um, and so Dr. Kelly presented results of a study which was really the first study, Um, so phase one and phase two, and as I'm sure your listeners are familiar, phase one is the first stage of testing a drug in people, and typically that's done in healthy volunteers. Now, what was really interesting about this particular phase one study is that they skipped the phase of doing healthy volunteers because they were able to make a successful argument to the FDA, which regulates the drug development process, that it doesn't make sense to test a drug to affect your response to gluten in healthy volunteers because that's really not relevant. And so the phase one trial was actually done in people with celiac disease, which is exciting because that accelerates the process to learn. And what the phase one study is about is about starting with a small dose and giving that to a few people, and then giving a larger dose and giving that to a few people to try and figure out what are the side effects, is this safe for people? And so it's really a tremendous service to the celiac community to volunteer for these studies because these studies are usually done in handfuls of people. So we really have no idea what's gonna happen. And it is quite anxiety provoking. I can tell you as somebody who actually participated in this trial as an investigator to be there with the patient and administer the drug and really not know what's going to happen. Now, what's interesting about this particular product is that, as you mentioned, is this something that would let me eat a croissant? And so it's actually similar to the Nexvax vaccine, trying to induce immune tolerance. And so because it's not stimulating the immune system, it's actually trying to dampen things down. Um, It is, at least from the data that Dr. Kelly presented, relatively well tolerated. Mm -hmm. And so the drug has been given to less than 40 people uh, but the results were promising. And what they looked for in this trial was after giving two doses of the drug and then having a two-week gluten challenge, what what were the immune cells, the T cells that are reactive in celiac disease that are in the blood, were these still simulated by the same, in the same way um, in the laboratory when you expose them to gluten? And it was quite clear that the drug had an effect on these cells, which is exciting because it suggests that the same thing would happen in the body. They also did biopsies, but the study wasn't powered to show whether or not the biopsy um, damage from gluten was actually prevented.
1: So since we're talking about croissants, I have to bring up Dr. Dan Leffler from Beth Israel um, in Boston and also Takeda because he talked a lot about the gluten challenge and actually um, had a great quote about eating a croissant and then getting tested. So there's often a lot of hesitation from people who have already been on a gluten-free diet to eat gluten again for a long period of time, sometimes 8 to 12 weeks, to get tested for celiac disease. But Dr. Leffler spoke about some new testing options that would only require people to eat gluten for a very short period of time, like one to three days. What are these tests and what would the requirements be for the gluten challenge? So I think it's important
0: to emphasize that these are tests that are only available on a research basis and are not available clinically and quite possibly may never be available clinically. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Is there a more efficient and more reliable way to diagnose celiac disease because we all know that biopsy findings can be patchy and there's some interobserver variability, and it depends how the biopsies are processed. So the idea here is that, as we talked about in Dr. Anderson's trial, you could measure this interleukin-2 once you give somebody gluten. And see, if you give them gluten this IL-2 comes up, that's a sign that they're reacting to gluten because that doesn't happen in people who don't have celiac disease. The other thing is that this IL-2 is coming from T cells and there's lots tests to find these gluten-reactive T cells in the blood. And so if you can find these T cells and you can find that they're activated after you're exposed to gluten, then that would suggest that most likely perhaps this person has celiac disease. The advantage of this is that you're looking directly mechanistically at an immune reaction, you can see these responses after one, maybe three days of gluten exposure, you don't have to undergo a biopsy at all. So there's many advantages to this, but it's really important to stress that this is, at this point, is more of a thought than something that's really been tested, evaluated, or anywhere close to being available.
1: So let's switch gears from more science-y type things, and let's talk about wheat fields. So one of my favorite talks was from Richard Goodman from the University of Nebraska, who talked about the structure of wheat. And what I found so fascinating about his talk was his description of how complex wheat and gluten actually are. So, you know, I've always thought of it as just something very basic that we use in bread. But in fact, it's actually many, many proteins in wheat, rye, and barley. So I'm curious, what are these different proteins? And do the different structures affect people with celiac disease differently?
0: So I think that's an excellent question. And I think it's something that we often take for granted when we're talking about gluten, is that gluten is really not just one thing. It's a name for a group of things. And so gluten is a protein and it's made by plants because plants go through periods where there's lots of energy and lots of resources and they go through drought. And so when they go through these periods where they have extra energy, just like people store fat, plants store protein as gluten. So wheat stores protein as gluten and how this is stored is actually determined genetically. And because of how wheat was bred historically wheat is different from humans in that there's actually many, many different chromosomes and there's many of wheat, varieties of wheat which have varieties of multiple chromosomes. And so gluten actually is very variable among wheat species and also depending on the protein available, different glutens may be made in a different season or in a different place.
1: Could Is it possible that somebody could eat wheat and have a different reaction than they would if they ate rye or barley? So I think... I think the best answer I can give you is we don't really know. Definitely we know that
0: there are certain strings of protein in gluten that are what are recognized by the immune system. And so if a strain of wheat has more of those, one might suspect it might, one might have more of a reaction because there's more stimulation. But that really is speculative and hasn't been tested.
1: So the last topic I want to jump into is talking about gluten detection in food. And you and I have been very involved in testing of food samples recently. So um, Jennifer Voisner from Immunogenics gave a great talk about the science behind gluten detection, uh, mostly talking about the differences between the ELISA test that we all know very well and comparing it to mass spectrometry. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about mass, mass spectrometry and how it differs from the ELISA test that food manufacturers have grown to consider the gold standard?
0: So mass spectrometry and ELISA are two ways to detect proteins. As we mentioned before, gluten is a protein. And so ELISA uses antibodies. So just like TTG is an antibody, you can get antibodies that recognize gluten, just like the old anti-gliding antibodies we used to use. Um, And so in an ELISA test, an antibody is used to detect the gluten. And and there's limits to that test based on the sensitivity of the antibody. Also, antibodies need to recognize need certain fragments of gluten in order to recognize them so in order to really tell that gluten is there since you have many different sequences of gluten you would need to have many antibodies now mass spectrometry is a little bit different because what it does is it doesn't look at the identity of a protein based on how it matches an antibody it actually measures the mass of it mass spectrometry works different from ELISA because instead of Using an antibody to detect a specific protein, it looks at all the proteins in a sample and it takes the weight of them. And because proteins are strings of amino acids and each amino acid has a specific mass, if you have several in a row, then you can tell from that mass what the sequence of amino acids is. And so this is a way to find gluten that can be better in some situations than others. particularly if you have bits of gluten that are chopped up because if they're too short, the ELISA immunoassay might not recognize them, but you could still see them on mass spectrometry. So this is an issue that comes up particularly when you're talking about hydrolyzed
1: glutens like soy sauce and everybody's favorite, beer. So should food companies be using mass spectrometry instead of the ELISA to test for gluten in food?
0: I think that's a controversial issue and it really depends on the question you're asking and what you're looking for. Certainly, it's well known that ELISA is not a great technique to find hydrolyzed glutens. But there's also issues with mass spectrometry because it's not necessarily the best quantitative technique to determine exactly how much gluten is in a sample. And so ultimately, probably there's a third technique that may be better than other of these techniques, um, which we're also not using. But... Right now, the Codex Alimentarius specifies ELISA, and so that's part of the reason why food companies rely on ELISA.
1: Well, that certainly leaves us a lot to think about in terms of testing for the future. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today, but most importantly, I want to thank Dr. Sylvester for coming on the podcast again this week. Um, We know she's been on the podcast a lot recently, but that's because she's just such an expert in celiac disease and so involved in all of these research projects and clinical trials. So I just want to thank you for your dedication to the celiac community and to educating all of us um, on all these great things that are happening.
0: Thank you. And I'd like to really, you mentioned at the beginning, and I think it bears repeating the fantastic job that... Dr. Peter Green and his team did at Columbia, switching the format of the meeting at the last minute so it could still happen. And I hope that that maybe possibly even meant that some of your listeners could participate who might not have otherwise been able to. So thank you. It's always fantastic to talk about celiac disease. And I hope that there'll be many more exciting things to talk about in the days, weeks, and years to come.
1: Well, thanks to everyone for listening today. And we will talk to you again next time.